KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. The U.S. was already facing a shortage of doctors before the coronavirus pandemic. Now the medical community is being stressed to its breaking point. There's a bipartisan bill that's aimed at getting them some reinforcements. It's called the Healthcare Workforce Resilience Act, and it would make 40,000 unused immigrant visas available for doctors and nurses who want to come here to work. 15,000 for doctors, 25,000 for nurses. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware is one of the original sponsors. 36 senators have now signed on, which is pretty remarkable when you consider the divide over immigration in this country right now. We're going to talk to him in a few minutes about what the bill would do and the plan to get it enacted. But first, I called Dr. William Pinsky. He's president of the Educational Committee for Foreign Medical Graduates, or ECFMG. The commission vets doctors who are trying to get visas to come here to do their clinical training. To give you an idea of what we're talking about here, nearly 30% of doctors and nurses in the U.S. are from other countries. According to the Center for American Progress, that's more than 37,000 doctors and about 600,000 nurses. ECFMG has been successful in getting the federal government to exempt immigrant doctors from recent restrictions on immigration. I asked Dr. Pinsky about that, about the vetting process, and who would be eligible for these visas. Dr. Pinsky, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Could you start out by telling us what the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates does? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. The Educational Commission, and we refer to it as ECFMG, was founded almost 70 years ago to be the sole agency that certifies physicians who've graduated from medical schools outside of the United States and Canada and wish to come here for further training, meaning residency or fellowship, and possibly uh, stay to, to practice. Uh, so we um, verify their identities. They are who they say they are, that their diploma and transcript from medical school are authentic. We work with the United States Department of Treasury to be sure that they don't show up on a list of individuals who've had some sort of activity that would preclude their coming into the United States. And then we're able to register them for the United States Medical Licensing Exam, which is the, the same licensing exam that all U.S. graduates have to take as well. And when they're successful passing the various parts of that, then we can enter them into the, the process to compete for a residency or fellowship training position. Every year, how many foreign-born physicians do you sponsor? So on an average, it takes about three years for an individual to get through the certifying process, which includes passing all the examinations. And so there's about 10,000 people a year that get through the, the process. And there's about 12,000, 12,600 on an average that go into the residency match, which is the process for programs to pick their their residents. About 12,500 get into the match every year. Can you tell me what kind of impact the pandemic has had on this process and getting these these, uh, doctors into the United States? 
it has had a, a definite impact. We're very successful in getting the international medical graduates into the country to start their training this year. So in the residency match, uh, which comes out in March every year, so March 2020, obviously, as the pandemic was intensifying in the United States, the match came out and we had approximately 4,400 foreign national international medical graduates in the who were successful in the match. Now, ECFMG is also the only agency that the U.S. Department of State authorizes to sponsor the J-1 visa for physicians uh, to come into the United States for further training. The J-1 visa is a non-immigration classification for visas. It's actually classified as a cultural exchange visa in order to promote, as it sounds, cultural exchange between the United States and the respective countries. And so we sponsor the J-1 visa for the international medical graduates. And so even before the match came out at March, I began to look forward to see what kind of difficulties we were going to have with travel, as well as working through the various embassies and consulates around the world to get the visas processed. So we reached out to the Department of State, and we have a wonderful working relationship with the career professionals in the Department of State who understood that we were going to need some help from them in facilitating the the visa processing. So as there were a variety of different, I think, executive orders or at least proclamations that came out from administration, as you may have noticed, each time there was an exception given for healthcare professionals. And that was largely due to our working with the Department of State in alerting them to, to the issues. So in fact, they actually facilitated the processing of the visa applications around the world. And, you know, I can look back and say, it was wonderful help, which it was, but it wasn't easy. I mean, it wasn't easy for the Department of State or for us. As it turns out, as of about a week ago, the residency training programs traditionally begin July 1st. We had over 94% of the individuals who have arrived, which is pretty pretty par for the course on other years as well. That's remarkable. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, it really, I you know, and that's why I say, looking back, it was like, well, you know, great. But <laughs> I, I know the Department of State put a lot of energy into this. And as we were, became aware of issues in various places like Nepal and Philippines, India, you know, various things came up. They were right on it in contacting their peers. Congratulations, because I can't imagine what you guys went through with everything that was going on. Uh, how much does our healthcare system rely on these these foreign-born doctors? quite a bit. Approximately 25% of all physicians in the United States have gone to medical school outside the U.S. and Canada. And I would, I would just remind you that they're not all necessarily foreign-born because some of these are U.S. citizens that have gone to medical school in other countries. But 25% of the workforce are international medical graduates. And they are somewhat disproportionately situated 
in underserved areas compared to graduates of, of U.S. medical schools. So that would be in both rural areas as well as in urban areas. But we very much depend on them. Without 25% of physicians having come from outside the United States, we would have even more of an access issue in regards to access for patients to receive care. So in your opinion, I mean, because you do have a broad overview, obviously, of our healthcare system, do we need 15,000 more doctors right now in our system? I think from the, from the workforce numbers that I've seen and the Association of American Medical Colleges, I think just a simple answer to, to your question is, yes, we need them. Okay. Um, it gets a little bit more complicated because then it's the distribution of the physicians you know, urban areas are probably in better shape than rural areas. And so it's in, it's the numbers as well as the distribution of them. Right. And the stress then caused by the pandemic as well. You know, these doctors are right. under a tremendous, tremendous amount of stress. Yeah, absolutely. You know, pre-pandemic, those of us involved in medical education, we've all been involved in, in wellness concerns, starting with medical students, and their residents and then physicians out in practice. And the the pre-pandemic stress has been significant. And obviously, this is exacerbated. I just, you know, the thought of dedicated people that every time they go to work, they're putting their lives at risk is just not something I don't think any of us envisioned. And it's not just putting their own lives at risk, it's putting their families at risk because you know, what do they bring home with them? You know, all the loss of life during the pandemic has been tragic. And the loss of, of the health professionals, nurses, therapists, physicians, technologists, you know, across the spectrum is, is heartbreaking. It really is. Dr. Pinsky, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Good. Thank you. Senator Chris Coons is from Delaware. He's a Democrat. And as I mentioned, he was one of the first co-sponsors of the Healthcare Workforce Resilience Act. There's a companion bill in the House which also enjoys broad bipartisan support. But the bill is stalled out. And one of the things I wondered was, why are they having such a hard time getting it passed? So you were one of the original sponsors of that. Uh, That would make 40,000 unused visas available for foreign-born doctors and nurses. And I know... Uh, you know, we're just talking about that. This is a bipartisan bill, which I think is very notable considering the debate that's going on in Washington right now over immigration. Carol, one of the things most of your listeners don't realize is how many strong bipartisan bills there actually are in Congress. This is a great example. The original co-sponsors, Senator Durbin and I as Democrats, Senators Young and Purdue as conservative Republicans, pulled together a bill that would address a critical issue in our healthcare workforce during this nationwide, this global pandemic. And it's actually got 36 co-sponsors that include Senators uh, Carper and Casey from our region. In the House, it's got 62 co-sponsors, ranging from Congresswoman Blunt Rochester from Delaware and Wild from Pennsylvania uh, and uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick. So it is bipartisan. It is bicameral. It's got a great group of sponsors and it addresses an urgent problem. So why haven't you been able to get it through with that much support? What a great question. Um, We have slowly ground down as a Senate to being um, at a point where we struggle to pass even common sense bills that have broad support because a few members of the Senate, and forgive me right now, they tend to be Republicans more than Democrats, object. 
normally a bill like this would get passed by what's called unanimous consent, which means we take it to the floor. As long as nobody objects, it passes. We've tried. We aren't able to do it. So we've decided as a group of co-sponsors to roll it into the relief package, which as of last week we thought was on track to pass. Obviously now there's an impasse. When we get back into session after Labor Day, it's my hope that we'll be able to move this because it has support from Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate. A sixth of our healthcare workforce in the United States is foreign-born, and immigrant doctors and nurses play a vital role, in particular in delivering service and support to more rural and medically underserved parts of our country. Without them, our healthcare system wouldn't work. And given what a hot point, given what a flashpoint immigration has been for this administration, I'm really grateful that we've got such a broad and bipartisan group of co-sponsors working tirelessly to move this forward. Your point, uh, you know, about how much we depend on foreign born uh, doctors and nurses, particularly in rural areas right now, um, plays into or plays into the fear right now that rural areas that haven't been really badly impacted by the pandemic yet are going to be impacted as we see, you know, in this kind of second wave of cases that we're seeing and that they're not going to have the medical infrastructure, the medical facilities or the doctors to handle an, an influx of cases like this. That's right, Carol. There was a mistaken belief early on in this pandemic that it was really limited to the coasts and to big cities. And as we've seen it spread throughout every state, every community in the country, we've seen outbreaks um, in states like Oklahoma and Indiana um, that have lots and lots of rural and medically underserved areas. Um, there are thousands of nurses overseas right now who are appropriately trained and skilled, who've got offers to hire them mostly into rural and underserved hospitals, but cannot get here because there aren't the visas available. What this bill would do is recapture 25,000 visas um, that are currently available but underused for employment and make them available for nurses and 15,000 for doctors. This is about meeting an urgent medical need for the United States. And I'm grateful that we've got bipartisan partners willing to look past the deep differences between our parties on immigration and recognize that this is the moment for us to deliver better public health for the American people. Have you heard anything from the Trump administration? Uh, does the president support this? One of the challenges of working with President Trump um, is that folks from his cabinet will say, yes, he supports something. And until he actually signs it, we don't really know. I'll remind you that um, it, it was now three years ago. Um, he challenged a pair of senators. It was Senator Graham and Senator Durbin to go come up with a bill that would resolve the dreamers uh, and uh, deal with immigration. They did. They spent months on it. I was one of the co-sponsors of that bill. Uh, a whole group of us um, supported it, and they went back and presented it. The president initially said, this is great, this is beautiful, this is what I wanted. He listened to some critics on cable TV, and 36 hours later, he reversed his position, refused to sign it, campaigned against it. On issues involving immigration, he has been particularly hard to get a firm and reliable commitment on. But the folks who are leading this bill include uh, senators who are up for re-election and whose future he cares about. So I am hopeful that would motivate him to support a piece of legislation um, that should get through because it's in the best interest of the American people. Has the bill come up uh, for discussion during these negotiations for the, the new stimulus package? I don't know that because I wasn't in the room. It is on the menu of things that has been discussed. 
Senator Durbin and I have worked together on a whole package of issues to support our public health workforce, to strengthen contact tracing, testing, and God willing, next year vaccination. Um, and it's part of that larger package. Um, so I don't think it's been specifically negotiated, but it's part of a dozen different bills um, that I've worked on and that Senator Dur Durbin has worked on that would strengthen our health care and public health workforces um, for this pandemic and for the recovery. It's disheartening, frankly, to hear the news coming out of Washington when you hear yeah. um, how far apart and the fact that there is this stalemate now, we're hearing there probably won't be any agreement before the fall. Carol, one of the areas I worked hardest on uh, was small business. I'm on the small business committee. Um, I helped uh, get through the Paycheck Protection Program in the CARES Act that we passed four months ago. It's helped five million small businesses and nonprofits all over the country. Um, I wrote a new bill, the Paycheck Protection Program Prioritization Act, that would have authorized a second round of these PPP loans that become grants targeted at smaller businesses uh, and nonprofits that have taken the biggest revenue losses. It's bipartisan. It was supported by the administration. It's something that should have gotten done as part of this package. Uh, I can't tell you how many, I'm getting texts and calls from small business owners, from people who run nonprofits, from faith leaders, uh, where this support made it possible uh, for all sorts of different um, organizations that either provide employment or support for people in our community. Um, it is so frustrating. I am so upset and disappointed at the failure of these negotiations. And I keep reaching out to my caucus leadership to urge them to renew the negotiations. What are your thoughts when we talk about how dependent we are on foreign-born doctors? I mean, you, you mentioned statistics. There's statistics from the Center for American Progress that says nearly 30 percent of doctors in this country right now are foreign-born. That number is thir more than 37,000 doctors. I'm not sure people realize how, how dependent we are when it comes to nurses. If you both RNs and LPNs, 600,000 nurses in this country are foreign-born. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. numbers are, I actually didn't realize the numbers were that high when I started looking into this. So it's one of the striking features uh, of the American healthcare system is that without foreign-born nurses and doctors, uh, we would be falling far short uh, of the human resources needs to care for Americans. And as our population is aging, um, these are great jobs that can't be outsourced. These are jobs where you have to be physically here to deliver it. One of the changes in this pandemic, there are now millions of um, seniors getting their health care remotely through telemedicine for the first time. But there's still going to be a growing need for more nurses and more doctors to provide quality care as our population continues to age. We should be investing in better STEM education at the elementary, middle school, and high school level so that folks are better trained who are here, who are, um, you know, American citizens in terms of then going on to the careers uh, in nursing uh, and in medicine um, that demand um, skills in science and in, and in engineering and in math. Um, but frankly, uh, we are just currently not graduating enough people from our high schools who are um, skilled and ready and focused on pursuing nursing or medicine. And so as a result, we've had to attract people from around the world. One of the great things about America as a country and a society is that we were largely built by the contributions of immigrants. And immigrants, uh, generation after generation, have brought vitality, um, skills, passion, diversity to our country. Um, and this is um, a, a significant and important part of that, is that many of us 
um, have gotten our care throughout our lives from folks um, who are new Americans. And that's uh, part of the both the story and the future of America. What would you say to people who are concerned that uh, immigrant doctors and nurses are taking jobs away from Americans? Uh, I'd say that that's why we need to focus on strengthening and investing in education in our schools. Um, these are jobs that are going unfilled. It's, it's not that we're recruiting people from overseas who are somehow less skilled or paid less. Actually, they work incredibly hard. They've got very strong skills. Um, they are often the best and brightest uh, of the countries uh, from which they're coming. And they are filling slots that there aren't Americans ready, willing, and able to fill at the skill level um, that our nursing schools and our medical schools demand. So, um, you know, first, I think we ought to be investing in our own country and our own people and their education and skills. As someone who's worked on STEM education in the schools here in Delaware, I, I see the challenge. Um, half of the graduate students in STEM disciplines uh, are foreign born. So this isn't just an issue in healthcare. This is an issue in engineering. It's an issue in material science. It's an issue in um, lots of different technical fields. We need to strengthen the education in American schools in order to truly be able to compete globally. I mean, but going back now to we're in a pandemic, if you were to think about if this doesn't pass, what is our health care system going to look like? Because we're still months out from a vaccine or any kind of treatment. Um, first, to be positive, uh, I've met with a number of uh, CEOs virtually, a number of CEOs of uh, pharmaceutical and, and biologic uh, companies that are very optimistic we will have um, more options in terms of therapeutics this fall, um, like remdesivir. It doesn't cure it, doesn't stop it, but it makes it less uh, harmful, less lethal. Um, so I do think we'll have some positive news on that front this fall. You're right. I don't think we'll have a, a safe and effective vaccine until the first or second quarter of next year. This is the equivalent of a moonshot. There has never been, <clears throat> excuse me, there's never been a vaccine for a coronavirus. Coronavirus is a very large family of viruses that cause a lot of different diseases. Um, and this novel coronavirus known as COVID-19 um, is going to take just exceptional skill and discipline and science for us to get a safe and healthy vaccine by next year. Um, in the meantime, if we don't do this, uh, we're going to have an understaffed, underserved healthcare system that continues to struggle uh, with the burden of a record number of cases um, that require a special intervention. I, I do think it's important for folks listening to realize that it's great that we applaud doctors and nurses uh, and the risks that they're taking and the very long hours they're putting in and the hard work they're doing. Uh, but it, it, it frankly is also important that we actually support them, uh, that we pay them better, that we provide more support. It is public hospitals, hospitals typically run by counties and cities around the country, that have borne much of the brunt of this. Um, the losses, the deaths from COVID-19 have um, unevenly fallen on black and brown communities that have had much higher fatality rates. Um, and that speaks to the ways in which our healthcare system is unequal. There are um, problems in terms of equity, of access, affordability, and quality in our country. That's why we need this bill. We need the workforce that can fill the positions um, in the hospitals and the communities that are least well served right now. It's also why we need to continue to make progress towards a more equitable, more affordable, high-quality health care system. Senator Coons, thank you so much for joining us for In-Depth. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Kira. It's great being on with you. 
That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.